Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me on another sunny day in an empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Robert Stevenson Padrone, Managing Director of Penrose Care, a Hampstead-based provider of ethical home care. Robert, hello. Hello. Thank you for coming on to the program today. Now, normally, uh, we'd uh, dash straight on uh, to the subject of leadership. However, considering uh, the circumstances we all find ourselves living under currently, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how COVID-19 has affected your operations. Uh, Well, COVID-19 is probably, of course, the most uh, tumultuous um, event that's ever occurred in our history since we started in 2012. It's not just, of course, the most tumultuous event for us. It's probably the most tumultuous event for the world for a very, very long time. Um, the the pandemic itself, though, does tie into the topic of the of our conversation, which is leadership, because so far um, we have not had any material, um, say, public health problems within our organization. So since the pandemic has started, we've had zero um, coronavirus cases among staff, and we've had zero um, coronavirus cases amongst our users. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would attribute this predominantly to the ethical, you mentioned we're an ethical home care provider, the ethical features in our um, employment system we had from the beginning, um, one of which is quite innovative, which is we have an occupational uh, sick pay scheme. Um, which most home care providers do not have. So in our scheme, uh, we mimicked it after one of the major FTSE 100 companies, which is, which also operates in a low-wage um, industry, and that was to provide full um, sick pay for 10 days, up to 10 days a year. Um, and by having that for so many years, we built a, um, a culture within Penrose Care, which is if you are ill, you don't come to work, and it doesn't affect you financially. So that's kind of num- number one. We've always had that, that kind of responsible bull culture within our staff. Um, number two, if, if, because our staff are, I would say, the, the best home care workers in the sector, they do know the importance of infection control. So even before the pandemic, the rule is when you come to a client's home, you're meant to wash your hands. After you do something which soils you, such as uh, washing them or dressing them or cleaning something dirty, you're also supposed to wash your hands. Before you leave the house, you're supposed to wash your hands. So that is the... Uh, um, a feature which has already been built into our our organization. The the added thing that we did, thankfully, because we prepared for the pandemic early before all of the PP shortages, and we're a very careful organization. So we stocked up on hand sanitizer long before it sold out everywhere. Um, and so one of the first things we did was issue hand sanitizer to both our staff and our clients so that if we're outside and they touch something, um, they can sanitize their hands. We also issued everyone with um, FFP3 masks. These are the best of the respir- respirator masks, which we bought when they were still about three pounds a piece. Now, you know, you see FFP3 masks, if you can find them, up to 70 pounds um, a piece, which is, you mm. know, we can't afford that. That's been insane. Um, and so I would say the fact that the the virus hasn't impacted us much to date is is because of leadership. We we um, we we would say you know we've always aimed to do the right thing from when we started, which was it began with the London living wage and uh, and numerous other um, ethical uh, labor programs that we 
built upon the living wage in the years following. And um, we're a very careful organization. So if it means we've got to spend some extra money uh, for an event, which we're not sure is going to happen, it's like buying insurance, and we'll, we'll do it, especially if it means it's going to safeguard our staff and our clients. So we stocked up on PPE um, before everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so we have not been impacted. Now, we are still trying to stock up on more. So, so how it has impacted my job is I think I've essentially gone from being a, um, a uh, how would you describe my job? I'm more of a um, comprehensive administrator or holistic administrator. And 90% of my job most days is now becoming kind of a logistics officer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we've been pretty good at that as well. And we have found special suppliers with supplies which are not price gouging. We will not buy from any um, profiteering organization, of which are incredible amount at the moment. I think the many people have been describing uh, social care's um, attempts to secure personal protective equipment. That's that for your viewers. They don't know what PPE is. That's personal protective equipment. It's like gloves, um, mask aprons, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it the wild, wild west. And I would absolutely say that it is like the wild, wild west. And uh, again, uh, you know, it takes leadership to to sit down, do the research, or have your colleagues do the research and discern where you're going to allocate your resources uh, most responsibly. And you know, no matter how for you are, if you're buying from a profiteering organization, you you both harm your own resources and you perpetuate. What is essentially immoral? I can see places charging more. Yes, there are places charging much more because they have to because their base costs have gone up. But there are places which their margins have just you know they're they're not moral. So so we will not purchase from those organizations. I'd like to ask you a question about something you mentioned a bit earlier. Uh, you you mentioned uh, that. Uh, as part of the innovative way in which you run your organization, you insist on uh, a rigorous hand washing regimen uh, when uh, when the uh, care enters the home, when they do any dirty work before they leave the home. As you said, uh, are you saying that this is not standard practice within the industry? No, it is meant to. It is meant to be standard practice within the industry. Um, but a lot of the the, um, the problems within the sector stem from the lack of ethics. So uh, social care is quite well known for having very high staff turnover. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, let's, let's, which, let's be honest, that there are some stigmas surrounding social uh, carers, uh, elderly abuse, and, and that sort of uh, thing that, that one hears of. Uh, so it's, it's good to hear from an organization that obviously is taking an ethical approach uh, to looking after their employees so their employees are going to look after their patients. Why is this a, a reputation that seems to be out there? Sorry, I didn't catch the band. What I was saying is that there, there are stories and there, there certainly is a, a little bit of an undercurrent of a reputation of uh, suspicion uh, surrounding some forms of uh, elder care. Uh, and elder abuse. And uh, what I'm saying is, as you're operating as an ethical uh, uh, organization that treats their employees correctly, which obviously in turn then treats their patients correctly, why is this uh, such a, a widely held uh, a view uh, outside of your organization, of course? So I would say that the um, the reason why the social care sector has a bad reputation uh, is you can write an entire book on that topic. Um, 
But I would say the very basic uh, foundational reason why it has such a bad reputation is it has had a culture of systemic criminality for a very long time, at least mm-hmm. as long as I've been in the sector since 2012 when I was an analyst, I was a health analyst before it had that reputation before. Um, there are many basic laws which have been flouted in social care for a very long time. Um, you can start with a very, very basic one, which is the minimum wage law. So when we started in 2012, um, you know, most providers did not follow the minimum wage law. Uh, and the, the violation mainly came through um, not, pay, not paying workers for traveling from client A uh, to client B. Um, and we, uh, when we started operating, so we, we set up in 2012, we started trading in 2013. That was really the primary task um, I had, which was to try to level the playing field on that, on that specific law. Um, mainly because we started trading, we were already committing to paying the London living wage, and we were following all the laws from the beginning. We wouldn't break the law. I mean, that's just, there's no point entering a sector to break the law, although many have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very difficult. So I do often say, and I say it today, and I think you can see the results in the government's response to the pandemic, which has not been wonderful, that um, there is a culture of impunity within the government here itself. So it does not, the government, the public uh, instruments here in Britain do not like to enforce laws, particularly with respect to labor laws, although you can look at other white collar crimes, you know, not very well enforced here. Um, And and it's really, really, uh, the system here pushes against you when you want to get these laws enforced. So the first thing we did um, was complained to our regulator. We said, look, you know, we can't compete with our peers because they're breaking the law. And they said, oh, well, the minimum wage law isn't our responsibility. So I said, who, who is, who, whose responsibility is it? And um, they said it was the HMRC. So I went to the HMRC. This was 2013. And they said, oh, well, we'll take your um, comments as intelligence. I gave them all the statistics to show just from the basic statistics back then that most providers were breaking the law. Uh, and the, so they did nothing. Um and so I had already started to work with the main labor union uh, for care um, here in the UK, which is Unison. They also said they had been trying for years, at least you know, close to when it started in 1999 with no, no success. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of the end of 2013 kind of brainstorming of what you can do, because in the UK, you don't have, I'm American, you know, you don't have a proper anti-corruption police force, doesn't exist here, which is very odd. Um, you don't have what we call inspector generals. These are agencies within agencies which enforce, make sure that the agency is compliant with the law. You don't have that here. So you don't really have any kind of recourse for corruption in the UK. Um, but I had remembered um, a story of an MP in Parliament who had shamed, I, th- I think it was the the serious crime office or whatever you call it, one of these white collar law enforcement offices for not enforcing um, asset seizure warrants. And said, well, if she can get this um, law enforcement agency to do its job, maybe she can help me out. So that, that was Margaret Hodge. And at the time, she was the head of the, the public accounts committee, which is that plus the national audit office is pretty much as close as you can get to an anti-corruption mechanism within the United Kingdom. So we lodged a complaint with them and, and it worked. They, they something I asked, you know, I gave them some very basic statistics to show the um, prevalence of the crime. Uh, very obvious to anyone back then. This is 2013, 2014. 
Juan Toluca, I asked, can you please refer my complaint to the National Audit Office, which they did, and the sector got cited uh, for it, plus the HMRC on force in the law. And uh, they put their first, uh, the HMRC did their first token enforcement in the, thing in the summer of 2014. That completely transformed the sector. Um, but that's only one fight. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the other big fight we've had with the sector is um, breaking the law with respect to the minimum wage when when clients, oh, sorry, when workers are asleep at clients' homes, that's ongoing. Uh, we've been only a handful of providers in the country which have complied with that law. Um, and it went to the Supreme Court um, in February. But of course, now that the pandemic has has um, taken place, I, we don't know when the ruling will come down. I mean, we would hope that the Supreme Court would rule that you do have to pay uh, workers the minimum wage when they're asleep at a client's home because they can't leave. Um, and if that happens, that will that will level the playing field um, with respect to the nighttime as well. Um, so those are just very basic laws. I mean, there are numerous uh, laws you can look at in social care that are broken. The other big one, which has not not been touched upon yet because it's such a huge issue, and uh, that's um, uh, the, the sham classification of employees as independent contractors. And providers do this have to pay um, holidays, national insurance, all these kind of costs of employment. Uh, myself and Unison have brought up a lot of these issues to the Office of Labor and Market Enforcement, which is the coordinating law enforcement body uh, to try and enforce these laws. But uh, when we went last year and, and raised these issues, they said, uh, everyone knows that this is the big elephant in the room, but you know we're not going to do anything this year. Well, unfortunately, uh, um, that is, we, we, we have run out of with. time. Uh, but uh, I'd love to have you back on the program where we can unpack uh, much more of this in the uh, in the near future. Uh, I do apologize for having to cut you off, but uh, I'd love to have <laughs> no you worries. back. No worries. No um, worries. Now, Robert, uh, just uh, very, very briefly before we go, uh, what does next 12 months have in store for Penrose Care? Uh, well, it's, it, it's hard to plan much at the moment because we don't know uh, what is going on. Um, our our growth will be dependent on whether or not we can find suitable people. That has been extraordinarily difficult um, for quite some time. And unfortunately, it's become more difficult during the pandemic, not not less. You would expect otherwise because, you know, a lot of people have lost their jobs. But it's very hard to convince people to risk their lives for even the London living wage. It's the, the reality that we are dealing with. Um, we would hope to be growing. But if we can stay as we are, you know, that would be success in this environment as well. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the program. And like I said, you have to come back on the show at some point in the future. Thanks. Uh, I'll be happy to. Thank you so much. Have a, have a wonderful day. Thank you. That was Robert Stevenson Padrone, Managing Director of Penrose Care. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team, and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know 
Have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress Gothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dress Gothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 
Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club Quite. you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just 
clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and you know if and when that happens that that should be a problem for a leadership and if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job absolutely um and w- with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because... They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? 
Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. in the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move at the times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth 
before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.